So, Christmas, coming on like a freight train. The decorations are up. Many plans have been made. Families have been traveling, will be traveling. There's all kinds of emotions involved in Christmas. By the way, I have to stop. It's Larry Legg's birthday. We're not going to sing happy birthday to him, but I just wanted to say it's Larry Legg's birthday, okay? Merry Christmas and happy birthday to Larry. <laughs> Back to what I was saying. Emos, all kinds of emotions. I don't know why I thought about Larry when I thought about all kinds of emotions. But there's hope and excitement, right? There's fear and apprehension. Uh, there's pressure. Uh, get the food right. Get the presents right. Deal with the unwanted guests. There's memories that are involved. We look forward to Christmas, but in some respects, we can't wait till it's over uh, because of the pressure that's involved. This opening video that we watched last week and this week brings out the fact that there will be conflict involved in Christmas, and the implication is that the series that we're doing will deal with those conflicts, and it will because there's a couple of weeks after this week. How are we supposed to deal with all the family conflict and the conflicts that just come as a result of the sin and the foolishness in this world. Well, our subject for the month is this, the unsettling solution for just about everything. Uh, it's relating to, to the meaning of Christmas. We've already let the cat, cat out of the bag as far as what the solution is, but there was something that made Christ irresistible to people. There was something that made Christianity irresistible to people. People attracted, uh, were attracted and flocked to Christianity in a dark time in the history of the world. There was something that was so attractive that eventually a form of Christianity became the dominant worldview of the Roman Empire. That's something is what makes people want Christianity to be true today, even if they can't quite believe that it is true. We're not talking about the existence of a God or gods uh, because almost all religions have a God of some kind involved. We're not talking about heaven or hell because almost all religions have some sort of idea about heaven and hell. We're not talking about what does it take to be good uh, or to please God because almost all religions have something about that, but the thing that made Christianity so attractive then and the thing that should make it so attractive now is in this single word, and that word is grace. Grace. Grace is amazing, of course, but grace is a couple of things. First of all, grace is what we crave most when our guilt is exposed. Have you ever been caught red-handed at something? You know when I say what I, mean, what I mean when I say caught red-handed? Did you use that expression? I realized when I planned to use it this morning that I didn't know what it meant, so I looked it up. And it comes like out of the 15th century, uh, people were caught with blood on their hands, you know, because they murdered somebody or because they poached an animal in the king's forest that they shouldn't have touched. And that's where the term red-handed, caught in the act, you know, caught and there's no way of getting out of it. It reminds me of a story that I've told before, but I'm going to tell it again because it's such a good story. But Gene and I were driving in northern Mississippi one day going to the Memphis area. And I'd been complaining for about two hours about the Mississippi drivers. Where did these people get a driver's license anyway? You know, who taught them how to drive? You know, I've been going on and it got dark 
and we were headed, get, getting close to Tupelo, Mississippi, and I kept seeing these headlights way back, and they were gaining on me, and it was a 65-mile-an-hour speed zone, and I was doing about 73. I figured I could get away with that, but even then, this car was gaining on me and gaining on me and gaining on me, and he finally caught up with me and moved into the blind spot on my left. And I, I knew he was there, but I couldn't see him anymore because he was in my blind spot. And, and we were uh, coming along, I was still doing about 73, so he must have been doing the same speed, and we were coming up on the back of a truck. And he just stayed there and he stayed there. And we got up pretty close to that, that truck and I said, I'm gonna teach this guy a lesson. And I just whipped it over, you know, without knowing where he had whipped it over right in front of him. And I showed him, and the night sky lit up with blue flashing lights. It was the sheriff's deputy from whatever that county was up there. And immediately I, I know I am caught. I am guilty. I am a dead man. I just slowed down, got back behind that truck, pulled off on the side of the road, rolled all the windows down in the truck, got my driver's license, I had my driver's license hanging out the window in one hand, had the other hand on the top of the steering wheel, and I waited until the officer came up to me. And, uh, you know, when you get caught like that, and there's no excuse, and there's no way out, at that moment, you're looking for something good that you don't deserve. That's what we crave most when our guilt is exposed. I hate knowing that I am just dead guilty of something and we want some grace in that situation that officer by the way walked up to the window talked to me a little bit about how fast I had been driving all the miles he had been following me talked to me about the the move I made when I pulled right over in front of him and almost took the bumper off of the front of his car told me that the speed limit was going to be reduced from 65 to 55 in just a couple of more miles down the road, gave me my driver's license back, told me to slow down and have a good evening and let me go. Whew. I'll never drive over the speed limit again so long as I live, but only for an hour uh, or so. But grace is what we crave most when our guilt is exposed, right? You understand what I'm talking about? You've been there and, and you couldn't talk your way out of it no, why don't you go out and catch the real criminals because I was a criminal. Here's the second thing grace is. Grace is what we're hesitant to extend to others when confronted with the guilt of others. This is especially true. You know, we're, we're hesitant. We like grace. We want grace. We need grace. But if somebody hurts us, that's a different story. If they hurt somebody we love, that's a different story. If they hurt our husband or wife, our son or our daughter, our mom, our dad, our best friend, it's a different story. They deserve to know the pain that we've known. They deserve to hurt like we hurt and even worse. You know what I'm talking about there too, right? I'm not suggesting that there shouldn't be laws and rules or that people shouldn't be held accountable. That's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm talking about those feelings of personal vengeance that we all have from time to time where we have been personally hurt and we want somebody to pay for having done that. That's the tension that's involved in grace. When we're on the receiving end of it, 
It's refreshing, right? When it's required of us, when somebody has hurt us, it's disturbing. Grace is always about relationships. And it is truly the unsettling solution for just about everything. It's the unsettling solution for us in, in our relationship to God, but it's the unsettling solution in our relationship with each other as well. Perhaps you've uh, heard or you have a definition of grace in mind from your past. I grew up with this definition that grace is the unmerited favor of God. I won't try to do that, to explain what unmerited means, but you have an idea. Or I read this one, grace is goodness to those who do not deserve it or have no claim on it. But we like to keep it simple, so we're going to say that grace is this. Grace is undeserved, unearned, unearnable favor. By the way, that, that word unearnable, that's not a real word, but it's just up there for emphasis. It's, it's, it's undeserved. You cannot deserve grace by definition. If you could earn it, then you deserve it, so by definition you can't earn grace either. It is not something that you have earned, not something that it's possible for you to earn. You can want it, you can ask for it, you can know that you need it, but you can't earn it or deserve it. Think about this. We can't recognize or receive grace for what it really is until we're convinced that we don't deserve it. Convinced that we do not deserve the goodness of God. And, and that's difficult because most of us feel like we do deserve the goodness of God. It's God's fault that these bad things happen to me. I deserve better than this. Every single one of us feels that way sometimes. Every one of us thinks, well, I'm better than that person over there. I ought to get a little bit something more than what they have. Uh, but grace is something you absolutely do not deserve. I said earlier that grace is always about relationships. Grace can only be experienced in context of a relationship where there's an imbalance, you know, where one is higher uh, than the other. You can only experience grace in a relationship where you're on the negative side of the ledger. There was the deputy in North Mississippi and there was me. <laughs> you know, I had no grace to extend to him. He was up here. I was down here. And that's what, uh, that's what makes Christianity, this whole idea of relationships and grace, and you can only experience grace in, in a relationship where, there's a neg where you're on the negative side of the ledger. That's what makes Christianity unique. That's what makes Christianity attractive. That's why Christianity is different from everything else, and that is why God had to show up, because it's a relationship. That's why we have Christmas. That's why God had to come to this earth. We would never have known, uh, uh, we would have never known the grace of God without the presence of God. That's the, that's the message of Christmas. It had to be personal. People want, why did God have, why couldn't he just wave a magic wand and make everything right? Because grace is personal, because it's a relationship, because we understand that we don't deserve it. Let me show you what I'm talking about by looking at uh, uh, three short passages and three of the four Gospels. You know, the four Gospels, the four books that begin the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each one of those is a biography 
of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Each one of them was either written by an eyewitness uh, of the life of Jesus or by someone who investigated, very close to the time, investigated uh, the events, looking at all the documents and speaking to the eyewitnesses. And we're gonna start with John. Uh, John was the, uh, the youngest of the t original 12 that accompanied Jesus. He had a brother who was a, a, also one of the 12. The brother's name was James. Uh, he's the son of a guy by the name of Zebedee. We know some things about him. Uh, we never get his mother's name, but, but his mother makes an appearance uh, speaking to Jesus on the scene. John refers to himself in his gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, Jesus loved all the disciples. He loved everybody. But John just liked to call himself that, the disciple whom Jesus loved. At the, the Last Supper, he's the one who's leaning over on the Lord Jesus Christ, the one that stuck close all the time. He was the only one of the, the 12 that did not die a violent death. Ten of the original 12 were martyred. Jesus uh, committed suicide. Only John lived out his life. He lived well into his 90s, and don't know exactly how long, lived up close to the turn of the second century, uh, long after the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. But late in his life, probably after the other three Gospels had been written, John decided to write his own account of Jesus and why Jesus was on this earth. And John presents to us Jesus as the, the one who was all God and all human at the same time. Seems impossible. Only God could do this. He was all God and all human at the same time. At the very beginning of his gospel, of his account of Jesus, John refers to Jesus as the Word. Right in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. That term Word, the logos, uh, is a term that means speaking or words or message. It was familiar to Greek philosophers. It was familiar to the Hebrews. But John adds his own meaning. What does it mean that Jesus was the Word? Uh, he describes him as, as being in relationship with the Father from the beginning. He describes him as being the very God of the universe, as the creator of all things. And then John gets to the reason that God became human in the 14th verse. John chapter 1 and verse 14. The Word became flesh. This one who was in relationship with the Father, who is the God of the universe, who is the creator, who is the purpose of everything that exists. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He came down here and lived as one of us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. The, the, the we there refers to John and the other people who saw Jesus with their own eyes. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. And here's the most amazing thing about Jesus, and it's the thing that I've mentioned two or three or four times uh, over the last year. He was full of grace and truth. Jesus was all grace and all truth all the time. Now, I have said, and I mean this, and I think about this all the time, we're all full of... We are never full of grace and truth completely. Never at any time are we all grace and, and all truth. The best we can try to do 
at our best is to balance grace and truth in our lives. But we're never all grace, we're never all truth, we're certainly never all both of them at the same time. Some of us are more grace. And you know who those people are. Some of us are more truth. And you know who those people are, right? Some churches are grace churches. I don't care. I, I, I'm not talking about the name that's on the front of the building either. Uh, other churches are truth churches. But no church is all grace and all truth all the time. But John, the youngest who became the oldest and lived the longest, John observed Jesus. And in his observation of Jesus, he saw that Jesus was all grace and all truth all the time. Jesus could call sinners sinners and then lay down his life for the sinners and pay the price of their sin. Only Jesus could do that. Later, it was John who said twice in the first letter that he wrote, we call 1 John in the New Testament, he's the one who said, God is love. And we sang a song about that, I think, and maybe he was giving the definition of love in this verse. Maybe love is this. Maybe love, no, go back to the definition, please. Maybe love is all grace and all truth all the time. Grace is, love is all grace and all truth all the time. That's what John saw in Jesus. John was there and he observed some things. He was there, we're going to look at Matthew's gospel. He was there for a very awkward afternoon after Jesus had called Matthew to be one of his followers. Uh, he was another one of the 12. He wrote the first gospel that's listed in the New Testament, Matthew. He called Matthew to follow him. It was another grace and truth moment. We're going to look at that. By the way, Matthew was a tax collector. And tax collectors were hated by the Jews. A tax collector was a private contractor who was, had the task of getting a certain amount of money out of a certain group of Jews. If he made any, he could make a little money doing that, but if he wanted to make a lot of money, he would get more than he was supposed to get out of people. He stole from his own people by collecting more than was due, uh, and he, he did that for his own good and to prop up an, a foreign, an, an occupying foreign government. Matthew seems to be a, a kind of a customs official at the port of Capernaum, if we track how, where he was and what he was doing when Jesus called him. But here's how Matthew describes the event I'm talking about. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Now, Jesus had already called some other guys, and they were following him and evidently with him at this time. He'd call Peter and Andrew, James and John, you know, who observed this, Nathaniel and Philip. These guys had already been called, and at least some of them were with Jesus at this time. And they must have wondered, why does Jesus want a tax collector in the group? You know, that's like the worst. Why would you want anybody like that in the group? But then Jesus went even farther, and he took the guys that were already following him, and they all went over to Matthew's house, and Matthew got all of his sinner friends and his tax collector friends together, and they ate together, and no good Jew would do that. But verse 10 says this, 
while Jew was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax, well, excuse me, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. No righteous Jew would do that. Sinners, tax collectors. Verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, we don't know exactly how this conversation took place, you know, with the Pharisees outside. They certainly weren't inside this tax collector's house. How'd they communicate? We don't know exactly uh, how that happened, uh, but no, no doubt Matthew and his guests heard everything. So they said, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors? Jesus didn't say what we might say. Don't be talking bad about Matthew and his friends. You might hurt their feelings. They might raise your taxes. God loves everybody, so cool it. That's what we might say. But on hearing this, verse 12 says, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. To which Matthew or some of his guests might have said, wait a minute, you're saying we're sick? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Jesus said, you are sick. You steal from your own people to prop up a foreign government that is oppressing them. But I love you, and I will lay down my life for you. Follow me. And then Jesus added this message to, the, to, to his message to the Pharisees, verse 13. You know, it's not healthy. Come for the sick, verse 13, but go and learn what this means. Here's the quotation from the Old Testament, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So after quoting from the New Testament, Jesus reminded them that mercy towards sinners was the most important form of worship, the most important thing they could do, and that was his work on earth. Jesus was never afraid to call a sinner a sinner. And he wasn't afraid to recline at their table. That's what people did when they ate those days. They weren't sitting up in high chairs separated from each other. They were on, at, a, at a low table leaning on a pillow really close to each other. Do you remember that other famous uh, story or well-known story or another one about this woman that was caught in adultery? And uh, the uh, Pharisees, the, the, the uh, Jewish religious leaders brought her to Jesus. Jesus up on the Temple Mound, a really holy place, early in the morning, and he was teaching. And this woman had been caught in the very act of committing adultery. And they held her and brought her up to Jesus, and they said, what do you think we should do? And he didn't answer them. And they were persistent. Uh, and he was riding in the dirt. And then he looked up and he said, well, kill her. Stone her to death. But let the one who hasn't ever sinned before be the first one to pick up a rock and throw it at her. And then he just kept on writing, and remember, they all left. And when he raised his eyes up again, and he looked at this woman, he said, Woman, where are the people who accused you? She said, They're gone. He said, Then neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. He said to the woman, You are guilty. You are an adulteress. You have broken the law, you are guilty, and, and the law says you should be stoned to death. But I say I do not condemn you. Go, stop doing that. All truth, all grace at the same time. The, 
the woman may have thought, how can that be possible? How can I be guilty? And yet, you do not condemn me. It used to be that way. But grace and truth had come in human form, and it was Jesus. Over and over, Jesus moved toward people before they had repented of their sin and invited them to follow him, follow me. Before they had, uh, had started following him, before they believed in him, he called them to follow him. One more thing, by the way. This is perhaps the most important thing. John saw, John was there for that thing with Matthew. He was there. But John was also present at the very end of Jesus' life on this earth. When Jesus was hanging on the cross dying, John was the only one, the only man that, uh, follower of his that we're aware of, standing close enough to the cross with Jesus' mother and some other women who were there, standing close enough where Jesus could speak to him. And, of course, if, you know the, if you've read the account, you know that Jesus looked at John and said, Mary's your mother now. And he looked at Mary and he said, he said John is, is your son now. In other words, you take care of her like she is your own mother. At the crucifixion, John witnessed the ultimate expression of grace, the most ex unsettling expression of grace to that point. And here's how Luke described that. Now, Luke was a doctor, a physician. He was Paul's physician for a while. But he describes his gospel like this as having carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Luke was not an eyewitness, but he was an historian he was an educated man. He was a man who interviewed everybody, put all the stuff together and gave us another viewpoint of the Lord Jesus Christ. And after careful investigation, here's what Luke recorded about the crucifixion of Christ. Luke chapter 23, verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him, with Jesus, to be executed. And when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Then follows an account of how Jesus said, Father, forgive these people that are crucifying me. They don't really know what they're doing. And the Roman soldiers made fun of him, and the Jewish leaders mocked him. There was no compassion shown for this guy who had done nothing wrong, and he was dying this horrible death. And then the two criminals interacted with Jesus. Verse 39, Luke 23, 39, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and save us, if that's really true. Now, we have, you have to, one of the things we need to understand here is that it was difficult for a person to talk when he was nailed to a cross. Uh, it, there was intense pain. Most of them had been beaten half to death before they ever got there. They were worn out, hadn't had anything to eat or anything to drink for a long time. And they were nailed to the cross, and the way they slumped down, it made it very difficult for the diaphragm to work and for them to take a breath. And so in order to breathe, in order to, to talk to breathe, they had to pull themselves up and go through even more excruciating pain. And this, but this guy was so mad, and he, he, he took all of his anger out on the good person who was there, and he said... Are you really the Messiah? Why don't you save us? Then why, why are you letting all this terrible stuff happen if you're really the Messiah? But the other criminal, verse 40, but the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence? We're all dying here. And when we die, we're going somewhere. 
Don't you fear God? Verse 41, we're punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man had done nothing wrong. This criminal acknowledged his evil and Jesus' goodness. But if God's kingdom is reserved for good people, then this guy had no hope. There was no opportunity for him to do good. He was about to die. No, no opportunity for him to make up for the wrong that he had done in his life. No opportunity for him to prove, I'm a changed man. I really will. I, I'll always go the speed limit from now on for the rest of my life. No opportunity to do anything. His only hope was that which he deserved the least, something he had extended not often to people in his life. He needed grace, and he asked Jesus for it. Then, verse 42, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, repenting from a cross. Meaningless, right? You got no bargaining power. What, 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 what can you do for God when you're about to die on the cross? But then it, Jesus introduces that, that unsettling thing that maybe even his followers couldn't understand at that point in time. They were accustomed to his unsettling grace, but how could he possibly go this far, take it to this extreme? Verse 43, Jesus said to him, truly I tell you today, today you'll be with me in paradise. Took everything Jesus had to to pull himself up, to catch a breath and to speak back to this guy that didn't deserve anything. Yet he responded, today you begin to spend the rest of eternity with me where I'm going. Because the place you spend eternity is not a matter of the good things you do. It's a matter of God's grace. Jesus gave this man who had nothing to offer the gift of eternal life with him. That's a grand expression of this unsettling answer to just about everything. Like life is not fair, so also grace is not fair. In fact, grace is disturbingly, unsettlingly better, way better than fair. Jesus demonstrated that all throughout his life. Life is not fair. Uh, the world is broken. All kinds of bad things happen. We look and, uh, and our hearts break for, for others and for ourselves sometimes. But Jesus is grace, and he's better than all that. After his resurrection, Jesus continued this unsettling solution to almost everything. Remember that guy Peter uh, who cursed swore that he never even knew Jesus, denied Jesus on the night of his uh, crucifixion. You remember that guy? Well, even though he had done that, last week we read about how that, uh, that uh, God called him to be the guest speaker on the day of Pentecost, right? The other guy said all witness, but he got to be the preacher that day. And he made, God made him a leader among leaders. And then later on there was this guy by the name of Saul of Tarsus, a persecutor of Christians. And Jesus said to him, follow me. And he became the Apostle Paul, uh, traveled all over the world preaching Jesus and wrote about half the New Testament. Jesus knows all about the consequences and the penalties of our sins. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more in the future. But that's why at Christmas, he came to rescue you and he came to rescue me by his mercy and grace. Grace is an invitation to everybody. Here's the invitation. Jesus says to us, I know all about you. I know the good. And I know the bad. Follow me. Don't try to clean yourself up. Just 
follow me. I'll lead you away from that sin that drags you down all the time. No, I haven't forgotten about the bad things that you've done. It's way better than that. I know about them, and I love you anyway. Now come, follow me. And that's what Jesus says to every one of us. I know, I know all about your life. The pastor may not know. Your husband or your wife may not know. Your children may not know. Your mom and dad may not know. Your neighbor may not know. But Jesus knows everything about us. And he says, come, follow me. I'm going to lead you away from that. Come repent. Come ask. Come confess. Come believe, follow me, and I will lead you into eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being the good, good God, the good, good Father. Thank you for loving us and caring for us. Thank you for Jesus, for his mercy and his grace, for the love that made him all grace and all truth, that makes him all grace and all truth. It extends to us. Help us not to try to make any excuses, but if we realize that we're not following, if we realize we've never trusted in Christ, we have no guarantee of eternal life. And he calls us and says, come follow me. And guide us in just not, not making excuses, not feeling like we're unworthy, because we are, but just follow him. For those of us that have trusted you, guide us every day in following you so that even though we can't be all grace and all truth, we can at least treat each other with your grace as we follow truth. Thank you in Jesus' name.